Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Canadian Story. I'm very honored to have Ian Brody here. Ian Brody is one of uh, the most successful politicos in Canada. He was Stephen Harper's chief of staff. He was actually also Andrew Scheer's chief of staff after the 2019, or right before or after the 2019 election. Just after. I I worked for him. I wasn't chief of staff, but I had. Well, he was. He was. uh, He was making sure the ship kept sailing while we were having a leadership race, and uh, and has been heavily involved in conservative Canadian politics for. Uh, decades. Uh, very honored to have you on here as someone who's dedicated the last 15 of my years of my life to conservative politics. Uh, and I guess we'll start off like we start off every, almost every episode. Uh, what do you love about Canada? Uh, what I love about Canada is, I mean, it's two sides of the same coin, right? Uh, it's a country of unlimited opportunity and extraordinary freedom. And we have the extraordinary freedom because there's an almost unlimited opportunity. In fact, I'm not sure it's limited in the human sense. And we have unlimited opportunity because we have so much freedom. Uh, you know, where people often talk about uh, we have this great natural endowment of tremendous physical beauty and natural resources and all this space. And of course, that's uh, that's that's true. It's a great advantage. Uh, on the other hand. There's lots of societies that have no space, no resources, um, no physical beauty of the same scale that we do. And yet, uh, if they can have enough freedom, they too could develop opportunity. But but our opportunity is maybe is in a sense um, uh, easier and more wide ranging because of the because of the just of the geographic scale of the place. So you know, can you pick the one or the other? Uh, I think there are two sides of the same coin. If we didn't have the freedoms that we have, even with all of the natural riches of the country, we would have no opportunity. And if we didn't have the opportunities we have, I don't think the country would be as free. What do you What do you think it is that fundamentally, in the you know, in the foundation of let's say the Canadians' psyche, but also perhaps Canadian institutions, what is it that gives us so much freedom? There's uh, uh, we're fortunate. Uh, in that sense, I realize what I'm about to say these days is a very controversial statement, but I think it's nonetheless true, is that the uh, British philosophical and legal uh, inheritance we get as a result of colonial uh, uh, impact here is a, is a huge help. Uh, living next to the United States is also a huge help because we have the example of their uh, approach to freedom and their approach to opportunity, a little bit different than ours, but not not hugely different. And then this is where I think that the geography of the place, the almost limitless physical expanse of the place by any human standard. I mean, obviously you can tell it's got so many square miles, so many square kilometers or whatever it is, there are boundaries, but, but for um, a human purpose, even in an age of jet airplane travel, let alone an earlier age of motor vehicle transportation, let alone an earlier age of, you know, horse and cart or ox and cart, uh, it's limitless physically. And that helps us kind of imagine uh, a a level of freedom that I think must be a little bit harder to imagine in places that are just a little more physically cramped. Yeah, it is pretty insane when you when you just look at it. Even uh, Zach and I talk a lot about his drive from, he lives in Woodstock, but his studio is here in Cambridge. And why, why don't you just share a little bit with Ian about that drive and what it means to you and why it means that to you? Yeah, well, I it originally came from, uh, so my wife uh, grew up in Southern California, just outside of LA. And when you drive down the freeway there, you just drive past city. It's just endless city and just endless buildings and concrete. And for me, my drive from Woodstock to the studio in Cambridge, it's a 40 minute drive and all I drive past is farmland. And when she came, she's like, I can't even believe that there's just farms everywhere. Um, and for me, it's, it's turned into a personal connection because I see that I see those fields, you know, five days a week. And I've been in this location for, you know, three years 
I've come to know that land and I love that land and I know where to, you know, I'm a hunter. So I know where to look for the animals. I know where the turkeys hang out. I know where the deer hang out. Actually, I was just driving home earlier this week and I saw the biggest herd of deer I've ever seen in my entire life, just hanging out in one of the fields where I've seen them hanging out before. So you, you begin to get a personal connection with the land that you live around. Look, I mean, I, in an earlier stage of my life, I taught at the University of Western Ontario. So, you know, in London, but I grew up in Toronto. So my family, when I was living in London, uh, my family was in Toronto. My mother was quite sick for some part of that time. So, you know, London's on the north, or uh, so Western's on the north side of London, not on the south side of London. If you're on the south side of London, it's sort of convenient to head south and hit the 401 and then zip into Toronto. But on the north side, if I was leaving Friday during rush hour, it doesn't really make any sense to spend 45 minutes battling what London calls a rush hour to get to the 401. <laughs> I got the north side and across the north side of it's um, by, Al- by Alberta standards, they're small uh, mixed farms, but by Ontario standards, they're pretty big. And the country does seem pretty endless at that point. And certainly, um, you know, until I would hit uh, traffic, you'd think, geez, you could drive forever here and not, and not run into much. And, and that's the heavily populated part of the country, right? If you come out here, if I drive to Regina, some time to time I have to do, um, uh, or uh, or from here to Saskatoon, uh, you know, Highway Nine and across Kindersley and into Saskatoon uh, through the what we call the special areas of Alberta. I mean, hardly anybody lives there anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the place really is gargantuanly endless. Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's enough room for everyone who wants to come here, basically. <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted to, you have a very unique uh, work history, but I wanted to talk a little bit about what's it like to to see the 4,000-foot view of a country and be intimately involved in every detail of that, but just watching it play out. How does that, how does that impact your love of your home? And like, what is, what is it about that experience? Would you say that you take, that you took away saying, I mean, what a privilege to, to have that role and to get to, to see the country the way you did, uh, what what did you take away from that? You know, it's funny you talk about being intimately involved in all of. Of course, you, you can't be right. So um, at the I was working for Mr. Harper. Uh, your encounter with the rest of the country is mediated through, I mean, mostly elected representatives, not exclusively elected representatives, but people who are representatives of different parts of the country, and so um, mediated through people. Uh, you know, it's 300 and whatever MPs in the House of Commons and provincial premiers or people representing different interest groups or, you know, whatever, get them through that and then get out to see some of the country, get out to see some of these people in their kind of nat- natural habitat. Uh, yep, yep. <laughs> in that kind of zoological sense. It's fantastic. I mean, you, you know, uh, the this is one of the things that I try to convey to students and it is a little bit hard because you can see MPs as, as they appear on television or as they appear in the news media, you know, depicted as kind of trained seals or just uh, factory unitized conservatives and factory unitized liberals as if they're kind of churned out of some um, a big partisan factory to be all identical, walking, talking robots, spitting out the same lines. And I mean, there's an aspect of that. <laughs> I, right. I, understand why people, I understand why people come up with that view. Um, but of course, that's not, you know, they're humans uh, and they're under tremendous pressures from people at home for this, that, and the other thing. They're tuned into different parts of the world. They're tuned into different parts of the country. And you get, um, you know, an ext- I mean, I, how many bad MPs are there? I mean, people have a different idea what a bad MP is. Right. But I, mean, <laughs> I thought we're really clueless or really not up to the job. Very few. No, it's true. It's true. Very they, they, they at least, at very least, they deeply care about home almost always. For sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, they may have a skewed view of what home looks like from my perspective, but you know, if they get reelected a couple of times, it's because they're doing okay at something. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's just competitive political process. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's other. There's people who want their jobs. <laughs> yeah, yes, these are not jobs for life. And uh, and uh, even in the writings that are pretty safely conservative, there's somebody looking for the nomination, right? So, so uh, you know, uh, some of those people I enjoyed working with, some of them maybe I didn't enjoy working with as much. 
but did I respect them all that they were plugged into a local community that had particular interests? And then you get them together in a room, the vast diversity of things that they're worried about on a day-to-day basis, worried about, I mean, concerned about the things they want to talk to you about on a day-to-day basis is an endless group of, of, of concerns. And so, you know, I guess I grew in respect for people who could take, you know, 150 or 180 MPs in a caucus and kind of mold it into a single view of what we were trying to do with the federal and the federal government. That that's that is very 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 difficult. There's a very rare talent, and people who can do that effectively are extremely valuable to the political process because it is not that is not easy. And then for the individuals who are coming from wherever, pick a riding. You know, open up the map of riding, throw a dart at it, and pick the riding. Um, for that person to be able to then kind of reconcile what's going on at home with what's going on across the rest of the country and what's going on in Ottawa and the country more broadly, also a difficult job. And I, uh, you know, I have, I have nothing but respect, even for the people who may not be pining to go back to work, but uh, <laughs> right, tremendous, right. tremendous respect for the, for the, for the job that they do, if they do it moderately, if they do it moderately well. And did you find that uh, that it changed your perspective on what Canada is? Because I, I look at my experience in politics, and I've got to can- I've had the the fortune of campaigning in you know six of our ten provinces, right. and uh, and one of the things that I've really come to appreciate is that we are a nation of nations. Like this is this is a. Uh, like you said, there are very different perspectives from our different places. And one of the, uh, I recently saw some polling from a public firm about lockdown feelings in Alberta versus in Ontario. And it's like, you wouldn't even think we're the same country, right? Like, <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, his- the country's big enough and it's been around long enough now that the history is different in different parts of the country, aside from the cultural issues that are different um, in parts of Quebec and the rest of the country, most notably, but there's multiply that times, times hundreds. And if you've been out campaigning, I mean, the best political experience is campaigning for sure. Uh, I always had a fondness for people who had done some campaign work, you know, in terms of trying to find a place for them in government, because Mm -hmm. if you've been out, you know, Campaigning is going out and seeing people, Canadians, where they live, doing what they do, hearing what they're worried about. Now, is that the be-all and end-all politics? There's other considerations, obviously, and you have to kind of refine that into a perspective and so forth. You can't just uh, you can't just take an opinion poll and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. There has to be a little more thought to it than that. But but if you don't have that basic grounding of dealing with people in their place of work, their place of business. Uh, their place of uh, community where their kids are growing up or or, or, uh, or they've got parents that are trying to take care of and so forth. I, I think you're really short something. And in my own personal life, you know, my father um, was a chartered accountant, but uh, in, a, in a small business, in a small business, and his clients were all small business operators uh, trying to make a living doing whatever construction, uh, professional services, uh, retail, whatever. Uh, I worked with him for a couple of summers, just a very similar experience of seeing people where they work, where they're trying to make a living, how they're trying to make their community better by offering some service that the community needs. And that's uh, that level of grounding is, I think, first of all, it's a conservative grounding. Uh, so I think that oriented me to the conservative side of the political spectrum first. Um, it's it's grounded at the you know Maslow's needs hierarchy at the very <laughs> bottom of it. Right? Yeah. How, we, yep. how, gonna, <laughs> how, how am I going to survive? Gonna, how are we going <laughs> to feed ourselves? How are we going to clothe ourselves? How are we going to house ourselves? But in a sense, that's the very uh, real part that people can can touch. And there are other issues in politics. And I understand that. Um, but uh, but if you can't provide if you can't provide an environment for success at that level for the country, which we've been thank goodness no smarts of mine. We inherited this from centuries ago and I just did what I could not just screw it up. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, that, that itself is not every country is so lucky. 
No, no. Uh, so one of the things I love about the Conservative Party of Canada and the Conservative movement in Canada, as opposed to many other Conservative movements, is our openness to immigration, which is something that uh, obviously you played a big role in with Stephen Harper. And Stephen Harper was kind of the guy who set that as the ethos of Canadian conservatism. What do you think it is about Canada that makes our, our right wing more open to that than other places? I think it helps that, uh, and certainly, I want to be a little bit careful about how we construe Harper's approach to this because Harper was for, you know, uh, uh, open but regulated immigration. Yes, yes. So ha- we're happy to have people, but we're going to have a, a, a gate that we let people through rather than just come on no, over. Oh, and I agree. That's 100% what we should that, be doing. That's but- a big distinction, right? That That's partly how you keep, that's partly how you keep public support for it, not just conservative support for it, but public support for it is yes, we're gonna have a we're gonna have an open door here, but there's gonna be a door and we're gonna pick and choose who comes through that door. But also I think a recognition Harper understood, whereas maybe some other conservative leaders don't in other parts of the world, uh, in an immigrant society it's like Canada's, where with the exception of indigenous people, you know, everybody else has got a family that that came here at some point, and even indigenous people had people moved around. Um, the decision to move here is itself a courageous, hopeful, balanced decision. People looking for opportunity, or they're trying to escape uh, oppression, you know, uh, religious oppression most commonly, or ethnic oppression. Uh, they're trying to escape the kind of um, vicious ethnic politics that gets, you know, identity politics that gets played out um, in other countries uh, without strong civic institutions. We have to be careful about that at home. And so I think he understood that, you know, people are doing that. <clears throat> they're coming here, they're going to start a business or <clears throat> they're trying to find a job or they're trying to provide for a family. They don't, you know, they want to be left alone to worship whatever religion, you know, they're bringing with them, which is fine. We're lucky that for the most part in our country, we're not too worried about that. And so, you know, whereas in other parts of the world, they look at a big uh, round of immigration as a, as a threat to the conservative nature of the country. I think Harper was quite clear about, no, no, this is, this is not a threat to the conservative way of the country. This is, this is an opportunity to harness, you know, if we, if we as conservatives can, you know, look past the kind of language barrier, the color of people's skins or whatever, which we should anyway, um, uh, there's no reason why these people aren't aren't conservative. In some cases, very conservative because they're very committed to family. They're very uh, sometimes hostile to uh, you know wild crime. Uh, they're not keen on big taxes if they're starting uh, a business or a family or whatever, and they want to take care of their kids. Well, check, check, check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds, that sounds like a pretty these good. These are our people. Of, that sounds like a pretty good part of the conservative base to me. And, uh, and uh, I think Harper, uh, Harper was clear about making that case, not just as a practical political matter, which is one thing, but as a principled kind of elevation of conservatism. And he would make that case to conservative leaders around the world, is that you don't have to have a closed kind of uh, closed club view of conservatism. The conservatism can be elevated past that into something that's, that's, that's a, a better form of itself. Yeah. Oh, on that note, what would you say, like, because you are a conservative, you've you've been involved with the party your whole adult life or iterations of it. What do you think it, what is conservatism to you? Well, I think first and foremost, um, uh, conservatism is a skepticism about the social engineering, vast social engineering experiments of the, of the progressive left. And if you take a look at uh, you know the rise of conservatism post-war in the United States, for sure, um, it starts at that point. Now, there's other pieces to it. There's a market piece to it that the the free market and free exchange based on property rights and so forth is a is a civilized way of doing business and civilizes people. Yes, that's true. That in institutions and established institutions around the rule of law and of the community are themselves not just you know. An efficient way to live, but in effect, an elevator way to live, which is also which is also true. But I think that kind of 20th century conservatism comes out of a reaction against or a worry about the excesses of 
the early kind of uh, Woodrow Wilson era progressivism and we had our own corresponding pieces here in Canada. And then you get a sort of a second wave of American liberalism in the United States around the new society, which is plainly destructive of all sorts of both institutions and mores of society and has an influence on crime and the economy and the moral way of life. And I think it was, you know, the, the, the post-war originators of this, I mean, there's an earlier conservatism too, but I don't talk about the one we live with today. Yes, yeah. Uh, it has an inheritance from that too, but what gives it its kind of motive force forward is um, that kind of big, large-scale, government-driven social reform of a small class of intellectuals with some kind of, um, you know, um, I won't call it a textbook idea, but but some kind of um, uh, impractical idea in their head is uh, not just uh, damaging, but dangerous. And we have to be careful about that. And that's where, they, you know, Bet Buckley's famous phrase, sitting athwart history yelling, stop. I mean, built into that is both this idea of history and that history has a direction, which I don't think is a conservative idea. <laughs> right. No, no, I agree. I don't think so at all. And then the yelling stop bit, which is he's yelling stop. I mean, when progressives hear that, they think you're just trying to impede the natural course of history and you're anti-progress and blah, 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 blah. No. I mean, that's part of it. <laughs> of course, that's a superficial interpretation of it. But you want a deeper read of that, which is that history doesn't work that way because humans don't work that way. And you're working with human nature, which is fallen if you're uh, from a religious tradition or bounded if you're from a uh, sort of rationalistic tradition. So, mind, these are not exactly the same, but they have some similarities to it. And that we can't, we have to work within the boundaries of what humans are capable of doing. So I love that because I think we have definitely entered, uh, you know, the Nietzschean God is dead and we've murdered him moment, right? Where, where you know, man's search for meaning has reached a fevered pitch because they're just flinging out whatever possible meaning they can find and, and trying to use it as the, you know, the... The, the battle cry of, of a group because people are lost. What do you think conservatism has to offer in terms of meaning? Well, so this is your, your standard question about what cat it could be. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, I think what we're going to see, and I'm quite worried about this, uh, coming after the Trump's loss and then Trump's reaction to his loss, and but, but more so developments on the progressive what you call you know woke American left, right? Is that this to me is a post-religious movement? Um, whereas in an earlier age, um, you know, Christians might have recognized the fallen nature of of humanity and the need for salvation. Uh, and you know, we have a particular concept of what that looks like, but that you know, a ge general construct of the fallen nature of of humanity and the need for some kind of um, um, uh, grace of God and salvation. Um, so, you know, any more traditionalist Christian wouldn't have a problem with the idea that, of course, our society has fallen because humanity has fallen, of course. Yes, I, right, we get that. Uh, but that's a comprehensive um, uh, theology. What, you know, that's an idea that's as big as God. Yes, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, it's as big as the religion. So it's a it's a comprehensive, multifaceted. We've evolved it over you know two thousand years of of the faith. Then other faiths have similar types, not exactly the same thing, but most of them have similar ideas. Whereas the woke idea is so deracinated and kind of uh, devoid of hope, which is the other part of it, right? So we live in a systemically racist society. We always hear, okay, so yeah, what's the hope for that? Well, there isn't because society's racist and we can't ever escape it and we've just got to go out and you know, racist, racist, you know, it's a systemically racist society. Well, hold on a minute. So you can see where that has a certain affinity with a, an older Christian idea of what society is yes. about. Yeah. But it's missing some pieces. Well, there's uh, no redemption, like you said. There's, there's no... none. <laughs> what, what is the redemption there? Well, you know, uh, this fellow writes this book about how we need a department of anti-racist action if we just engineer a government the right way we can fix all of these problems like conservatives have a very clear picture of how no that doesn't work right well government can't way. government can't fix these problems like you said they're human problems we've been down this path before we know where it ends 
And it does not end in happy space for anybody, anybody, including the people that you think maybe you're holding out that you're helping with this sort of thing. And so hold on a second there. And this is where, you know, stand aside history, yelling, stop me. People are like, well, we're on the side of history. History will be perfect itself, blah, blah, blah. Like, hold on a minute. That is not how history works and that is not how humans work. That's not a justification for racism, which is a moral failing, not a sociological failing for us on our side, I think. Right? Yeah, it's, not, it's, a, it's a failure of character. It's a failure of character. and But because it's a failure of character, it can also be overcome. Yes, by, yes. <laughs> it can be overcome by the individual. You can, by if you're a Christian, by praying, or if you're a more rational person, by, you know, studying great works or philosophy or whatever, um, there's an opportunity for you to overcome that and for you to live a better life. Does that mean the whole of society is going to be, well, maybe not, but, but, uh, but, the, but that there is, you know, uh, if you take the evangelical side of that in the you know, small evangelical side of that properly, that there, there is, there is hope there. And that is a message that the woke, um, kind of Red Army Brigade uh, that's laying waste to uh, institutions of North America and some parts of Europe right now doesn't, I don't think, I haven't seen them offer that yet. Well, they don't, they don't seem to offer any grace. And because I don't think it's about, uh, I think it's about power. And I, I mean, they would say that, that the, the, the power is the defining characteristic of, of humanity. And I mean, this is, that's why like, we can call them reds because this is fundamentally marks his great lie. I would argue that life is about power and like, People will like, of course, life is about power. Look at it. Well, it's like life is about what you decide to say it's about, right? And 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 it isn't. That is not the oldest story. Power is not the oldest story, right? There's, uh, and the, and that's the funny thing about that. Like, gaze upon my works in despair, right? Like, at the end of the day, power will be lost. So it can't be just about power because if it's about that, then then you're really just in a futile, you know, you're in that Sea Wolf Jack London esque, you know, war of the yeast. <laughs> and look, I, mean, I can tell you from personal experience, you can get yourself wrapped up in the power game, which I hope I I never did, but uh, you can get yourself wrapped up in the power game. By the time you acquire that power, you find that you haven't solved anything. It's not very satisfying. <laughs> yeah, and if power uh, for power's sake, like once you get there, it's what are you going to do? <laughs> when well, we say there are more important things in life, I mean literally, there are more important things in life. Yes, yes. So, so how do you see? I completely agree with. I want to dig into this more. What you're saying about the woke movement because I think it's so important is like I do think that they they they're on to something in the sense that they're just longing for justice because I, I believe all great lies are are they have to be majority true or people wouldn't believe them, right? It's like like, sure, like yes. right, yes. and I think the the poison pill of this of these woke movements is that they're not allowing their opponents to change their minds, right? It's like if you said something 15 years ago, you're not al allowed to change your mind, so you're actually causing a huge detriment. To your, the very cause, because if you, if you can't convince your opponents to, to agree with you, then you're not making social change. You're you're waging a war. Well, if we're going to take seriously the point, and I think we should, by the way, I'm a political scientist by training, so I'm going to say this. You know, it's a not it's a political science truth that we do have uh, systems of society, or structures of society, or institutions of society that uh, do not treat people fairly sometimes based on their group, right? Um, do we have uh, universally high quality schooling for everybody in the country? No, we do not, <laughs> plainly we do not. That is, a that is an issue that needs to be tackled, of course, yes, that's right. And insofar as the wokesters have kind of figured that out, oh my goodness, there's parts of the educational complex that don't serve all students very well. I'm like, well, welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think conservatives, oh, yeah. conservatives might have figured that out <laughs> generations ago. Yeah. And we've only been working for 70 years or 80 years on that problem. And we've tried some things out which you might want to take a look at. And um, I don't want to turn it into a partisan conversation, 
but maybe some issues around maybe there's some issues around you know uh, the administration of the public schools and the role of unions and professionalization and uh, curriculumization and so forth that 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 contributes to all that you know, if we want to think yeah. seriously about, yeah. about uh, or you know, I mean, I think there's a good conservative tradition. I'm not part of it. I've never done any work in it. Uh, but there's a good conservative tradition of uh, academic research about uh, policing, justice reform, uh, asset forfeiture is a current issue, and sentencing reform is a current issue. But there's an older tradition uh, of that, and I haven't been part of it. Um, but, you know, um, when uh, Giuliani and others, James Q. Wilson originally, were working on policing reforms of the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, it wasn't, it, it was most assuredly not in the pursuit of some concept of white supremacy, right? It was based on the idea that a breakdown of civic order in cities primarily um, hurts the people at the bottom end of the pyramid the worst, or the, the, the most severely, and then we can't let that go on. And, um, you know, Giuliani himself has, a, you know, a, a, a personal story to tell about, you know, climbing his way out of where he started from his life to become mayor of New York. And then uh, about, uh, you know, challenging the institutions of the police and of the correction system and of the justice system to deal seriously with the downside of, of street disorder on the least advantaged neighborhoods in the city of New York. And then of course this spread into other cities. Um, again, that was not some kind of let's reproduce white supremacy idea. Now, was there problems created by it? For sure, yes, good point, yes. And I, I think, as I say to the wokesters who just figured this out, Welcome to the club. We've, <laughs> We've been working we on were, this for a while. We've been waiting for you. <laughs> We've been waiting for you to figure this out. Uh, schooling, policing, some other institutions tend to sometimes trap people and uh, and cut off opportunities that they should have to go back to our original conversation. And so, uh, you know, on that front, I'm I'm sort of waiting for the wokesters to run out of their uh, you know misguided moral energy of the moment, and maybe we'll come back to a conversation later about that. Right. So. I want to talk about leadership and decision-making, right? Because at the end of the day, leadership is about the executive function of choice, right? You're, you're given options and you have to come to a conclusion about which option you're going to choose. And then you have to move forward with that. And at some point, perhaps you're going to have to admit that maybe you made the wrong choice because, you know, where you're, all leaders are infallible and you're never going to make perfect choices. So how, as a decision maker, as someone who's advising, you know, the decision maker, what's your process for trying to get the best possible outcomes while knowing your own fallibility? Well, it's, <clears throat> so this is, a, this is an excellent question. Uh, it's an excellent question in a personal sense, and then it becomes a very difficult question in kind of a broader organizational sense, right? Because I have written about this: is um, when you're in when you're in the prime minister's job, or when you're you know one of the people around the prime minister's job. Uh, it's partly the mythology of the job, but it's partly the reality of the of the nature of politics. Trying to find somebody to tell you. The unvarnished truth about a matter is quite difficult. Yes, yes. Um, these people are extremely valuable uh, because everybody else is feeding you a line, right? Like because you've got some piece of power, they want you to do something for them, so they're going to feed you some line of it. And it's not that they're lying. I'm not suggesting that these people are lying. I'm suggesting that they have a piece of the truth and they're feeding it to you because you know for whatever reason either they're honestly trying to do it or they're trying to you know gain some advantage of their own and that's just part again to go back to part and parcel of human nature yes uh, people pursue their own you know piece of the truth and their own interests and so to be careful about that and to try to get outside of that bubble because how, how did you get caught in the bubble i didn't get caught in the bubble the bubble gets catches you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the people who operate the bubble are paid a lot of money to capture you in that bubble. And uh, so to try and get out of that is is difficult. And over time, it, it becomes increasingly difficult. And that's why we have the luxury of changing governments, because the best way to poke the bubble is to throw the bum out and throw some other bum in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that 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 so that's very difficult. But you also have to be, you know, once you've committed to something, as you say, you know, nothing you say in politics, it's like, it's a bit like Twitter. I mean, nothing you say in politics is ever erased. 
and so you say, well, sorry, I screwed that up. Uh, we're doing something else now. Um, that requires some, some courage and some deafness of being able to draw on people's, uh, I mean, the, the electorates, um, understanding you're going to change, change quick. No matter what decision you make, even if it's a catastrophically dumb, bad, objectively bad decision that hurts a bunch of people, there's somebody there who's saying, yeah, that's the right thing to do. Yeah, Go for but, it. Yeah, Don't you dare change. <laughs> and, uh, and we'll raise you know, a stink if you do change. <laughs> yeah, or uh, to quote uh, the secondhand uh, quotation of uh, subsequent uh, Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, we can come up with op-eds to help you feel better about the decision. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, yes. Let them do that, right? Yeah, that, but yeah. that, that, and again, they're not... They're not. They're not trying to pull the wool over your eye necessarily, and they're not necessarily lying to you. They're giving you, a, you know, their story of this. And uh, despite the earlier conversation about, you get three hundred odd MPs from different parts of the country. Uh, the folks who come from, you know, to go to the, you know, never-ending dispute of conservative politics. Uh, the folks who come from the dairy-producing parts of the world, right? Um, so we have this, you know in some sense, crazy supply management system in Canada. You know, you have to have a license in order to produce milk and it's in order to keep the price up and the study, you know, it has all sorts of downsides and upsides and so on and so forth. Sure, yeah, true, good point. Um, <clears throat> you don't need to pull out your first year economics textbook to explain. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, no, no, exactly. <laughs> my management to me, thanks very much. I've heard it a thousand times. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, you know, there's uh, 15 or 20 MPs for whom uh, the dairy production system is a key part of their of their constituency, maybe a relatively small number of dairy farmers, but it's the origin of the, you know, the economy in their part of the world, and they see it in a different way. Now, I'm not saying that somebody's right and somebody's wrong. I'm saying it's, it's, like, if you blow up supply management, uh, you know, there's uh, 5,000 jobs in my part of the world that will be evaporated, uh, pardon the pun, um, in two years. Good point. And so yeah. I have to be very careful about that. Yes, yeah, that's right. And similarly, you know, as I always say to the folks who complain to me about supply management, um, the Canadian Bankers Association has the same view of all of the regulations. <laughs> yes, yes. But nobody's saying that you know Toronto's source of wealth from the banking and financial industry is somehow ill-gotten and void. <laughs> but they do the love their regulations. <laughs> yeah, we should blow up the licensing of banks because it turns out you can't be a bank unless you have a license from the federal government. Well, yes, it's like supply management for the financial industry. <laughs> True. Yeah, yeah. Well, I heard it said once, and I is that politics is just compromise. That's really all you're doing is finding ways forward for divergent views. Now, I think I think there's more than that. I want to go back to something you said earlier where you said you can't just take a poll and say, okay, this is where we're going to go. I think that leadership is fundamentally having a vision and then, and then just working towards it. And if, you know, if people decide they don't like your vision anymore, they don't have to follow you. But I, I always loved in, in the, you know, in the breakthrough election, it was basically Harper's like, these are the five things I'm going to do. And if you elect me, I will do these five things. And then he got elected and he did those five things, right? And it's like, I, that to me, that's leadership. This is what I'm going to do. And then you do it. Yeah. I mean, uh, in fairness to the patient wait time guarantee, I'm not sure we made too much progress on that one. <laughs> fair, we fair. We did four of them. So let's, let's, <laughs> yeah. let's say we got a, an 80%, not 100%. That's an A minus at the University of Calgary, not an A plus. But, but, <laughs> fair, uh, fair. Uh, the, great, the, great all, the great all generously give us. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a little bit older than you are, so I remember uh, uh, Reagan bursting onto the scene in 1980. I mean, not he'd been around for longer than that, but I remember him uh, going from being kind of a um, uh, kind of a not a crackpot, but a, like a, a wacky guy from California that would never work nationally. And the campaign against him in 76, he's too dangerous, you know, he'll start a war, he can't have that. This is a uh, 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 throwback to the Goldwater campaign, you know, that sort of thing. And then he wins. And, uh, you know, I said, so what's your view of the Cold War, <laughs> Mr. Reagan? He says, my view is very simple. That 
they lose, we win. <laughs> and, and then a couple of years later, of course, he goes to the Brandenburg Gate and Peter Robinson writes this fantastic speech and you know, it's a 45 minute speech or whatever it is, but people always quote the, 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 the clearest part of the speech is he you know, turns and he says to, you know, to the, you know, prospectively he speaks to the Soviet leader, Mr. Gorbachev, tear, you know, tear down this wall and suddenly the wall is gone. And when you do the CNN version of that on the documentary, like, oh, well, he said, we win, you lose. Then he went and said, tear down this wall, and then the wall disappeared, and there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Great, <laughs> that's leadership. And you forget that along the way, like, you know, the embargoes of the Soviet economy, the grain embargo of the Soviet economy was an extraordinarily difficult bit of statesmanship for him to pull off. There were compromises involved in that, right? There were core components of his own party uh, in the grain business, uh, grain farming and grain trading business, who you know, were making a lot of money selling grain to the Soviet Union, because even with all of their resources, like to another conversation, a country full of uh, natural inheritance and massive agriculture, but they couldn't feed itself for crying out loud. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's got, that's got to tell you something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, go, go, go do the math yourself as a homework exercise, but figure out why that didn't work. Um, and so he says, "Well, we're not. We're just not. We're we're not going to trade with the Soviet Union in that sense anymore, and that in that sector anymore, and that required, you know, a tremendous number of compromises and of cajoling. But on the other hand, he reaches across to uh, the union movement, who's not a Republican constituency, right? A constituency of the other parties, actually, a core constituency of his opponents." And says, you know, um, uh, there's a union movement trying to get started in Poland. Uh, I'd like to support them. Uh, the British would like to support them. We have a new pope who would also like to support them because he's from that part of the world. But what we need is some union help from, you know, since we're the privileged unions in the Western world where you can operate freely and organize freely and raise whatever money you want freely and strike freely. And those folks over there are in your movement, but they don't have any of these um, rights and privileges. Can you help us out here? And he managed to, you know, he managed to finagle the unions on side too. Um, the extraordinary, you know, a complicated act of leadership. Again, you know, if all you have is the CNN footage, it looks like you draw a straight line from me to B. Right, right, right. What were we all worried about in the first place? Why was there a nuclear arms race or anything? Like, what was the Cold War all about? All you had to do was have a guy come and say, you lose, we win, tear down this wall, and poof, it's all over. <laughs> right, um, right. No, but I mean, he was serious about it. Uh, he was serious about making sure there was change on the other side of the the uh, the Iron Curtain, the seventy fifth anniversary this week, I guess, of the Iron Curtain speech, and um, and and then he went about doing it in a very bloody minded way. But he made lots of compromises along the way, so he had an objective in mind, and then uh, I think a very gritty, real world understanding of what it would take to get from A to B, and a willingness to reach out to people you might not otherwise be naturally allied with. I mean, obviously Reagan had been a union man earlier on in his life when he was an actor, but that's not quite the same thing as the steel worker. <laughs> no, not, not quite. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, you know, he understood the, the, the union movement, the labor movement, um, uh, in that sense, he had some first-hand experience and was able to mobilize them as well for what was really a cross-partisan, um, cross-national um, not just a victory, but a massive advance in the state of, of humanity. You know, a, a liberation movement, if you want, that liberated hundreds of millions of people from a dreadful system. Now, it's, that's not all done. Not all the work is done. And not all of the pieces of that puzzle went as well as we would have liked. But, you know, our people in Czech Republic, Slovakia, was, was once East Germany, Poland, Hungary, Romania better off than they were um, uh, before Reagan came along, un uncontestably, and and the flourishing of of the human species as a result of that uh, is an ex is an extraordinary inheritance. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, people often are like, well, if you compromise on anything, then you you don't have principles, right? And and I like to say to them, no, no, no. Compromise is a form of principle. It's a willingness to be humble. You can't compromise on your fundamental core values. Like you, and, and this goes back to kind of what's happening right now, right? We have a, a government who's silent on China, so they're compromising on what I would argue is a core value, and I guess that's the, the argument, right? Well, this is some of the argument I try to make to students and to colleagues uh, 
at the university. Of course, not only is compromise, uh, you know, we have parliamentary debate in my class. Uh, why do we have parliamentary debate? Well, of course, you know, it's a useful teaching technique. Students, you know, learn some things from that and they invest themselves in the debate and so on and so forth. True, all of that's true. And, uh, you know, I can put that in my annual performance report. I've, I've met <laughs> yep, someone. Yep, yep. Yep. <laughs> but the real purpose of that uh, is akin to compromise. Uh, free speech and free debate is a recognition of our fundamental political equality. Um, I speak my mind. Why? Uh, why do I get to do that? Why don't you have to agree with me? Because we're politically equal. And politically, politically equal means if I want to persuade you, I have to use some persuasive powers, not just beat you over the head with a baseball bat or something. Um, that's what you do in a system that doesn't have political equality. They got the baseball package to beat you into submission. But in a system that recognizes the fundamental political equality of, of everyone, um, freedom of speech is an essential part of that. You can't have fundamental political equality without free speech. And then that leads to the persuasion and the compromise. And the compromise is the recognition that, yes, I don't uh, probably agree with all of your position. Uh, I may not um, really uh, uh, accept fundamental parts of your position, but I understand that your position is yours and that you and I are political equals here. And so, in a sense, we have to come to some kind of compromise. It's, again, I would say like free speech, like freedom of association, is a recognition of our fundamental political equality. And so if you say, oh, well, you, you know, I'm interested in equality. I say, yeah, me too. Uh, that's, why I'm, that's why I'm such a proponent of this, uh, the parliamentary process recognizes the equality of citizens, including the people who support the government side and the people who support the opposition side. And at some point, uh, if there's a compromise in the volunteer, it's because, you know, you're not empowered to beat me over the head to accept your position. And yes, yes. Empowered <laughs> to beat you over the head to accept my position. And uh, and that's, you know, right to your earlier conversation, but it's all about power. Um, not right. Uh, not quite. And uh, if, if it is all about power, then we just go around and beat each other until we submit. Uh, but that's not very civilized. And uh, editing is probably not very productive over the long run and not the, the tradition of politics that we come from in this country. Uh, you know, are there downsides to it? For sure. Do we fall short of the ideal in many respects? For sure. Of course we, yes, for sure. Of course we do. And have we in the past fallen short of that? Yeah, yes, for sure. Yes. Um, so tell me about that and tell me what you want to do about it. And I'll tell you what I think we should do about it. And maybe we can have a conversation about that that will improve both of our ideas. And at a certain point, if we decide we're going to do something about it together, uh, maybe we'll do 40% of what you want to do and 40% of what I want to do and 20% of what somebody else wants to do. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And I think we've had a lot of people on this podcast, particularly a large number of uh, first or second generation immigrants. And I've always been shocked by how much more the immigrants seem to love this country than the native-born who take it for granted. And I think that's such a, a key point that you just made is they all love the freedom we have here and they're all longing to come here to have it. And we're sitting here being like, oh, we are so bad. No, we're, 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 we're beyond bad. We're like, we're unforgivable. And I'm like, well, if we're unforgivable, then all you're teaching people is that they don't have to care about these injustices anymore. Really, if, if, if it's unforgivable, there's, then nothing, to there's nothing you can do about it. No, and, you know, the University of Calgary, where I teach now, is um, certainly in the Faculty of Arts, uh, a hugely immigrant population amongst the students, right, for, for a variety of reasons. We save that for different podcasts. Uh, but I have lots of students who's, who either were born elsewhere or they were born here, but their parents came just before they were born from someplace else. And so we get all sorts of stories about what, you know, what, what was that about? And they come to take Canadian politics for lots of different reasons, in some cases because they're in a program where it's required. But in some cases, they're just curious, which is fine, too. Also a good reason to take the course. Yep. Um, I think how many of them to tell me, well, you know, um, my parents left this society or I left this society with my parents because somebody of my religion or somebody of my race was going to be treated differently, meaning worse, because some other religious group or racial group had the power in the society. How do you stop that from happening in Canada? I said it is a constant generational struggle to make sure that we don't fall into that trap. Yeah. And, oh, okay, but there's some kind of institutional guarantee. I said, no, we can build institutions that make that hard. 
and then try to teach people either overtly through education or through the absorption of parliamentary institutions that um, the party competition system and so on and so forth, that's the way we do it here and that that's a good way to do it. But but as a useful reminder uh, to me, for sure, and sometimes to other students, uh, you came here from a country where there's a racial or religious caste system. Um, very few people want to live in those countries, including the people who are supposed to be the beneficiaries of the caste system, right? Given an opportunity, would they rather live there or rather live here? Come on, of course, you know, very few want to live there and they want to live, they want to live here. Um, well, we have, you know, it's richer. Yeah, it's richer for a reason. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, just ha- it's, this, it's this idea of, and I, I agree with the idea of privilege in the sense that to whom much is given, much is expected, right? For sure. That's utterly true. But it didn't just happen. It wasn't just like, oh, you guys got lucky in Canada and everywhere else is unlucky. No, no, no. We built this this way on purpose. Um, but the extraordinary ambition of foreseeing yeah, you think about 1864 at the at the Charlottetown Conference and 1865 at the Quebec Conference, where they're putting this together, right? I mean, there are people from what becomes Quebec, what becomes Ontario, what is Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island. PI didn't come along at the beginning. But the document that they drafted, the British North America Constitution of 1867, explicitly incorporates what if British Columbia wants to join or what's going to become, how would we acquire the Northwest Territories and what kind of arrangements would we be able to offer that for, um, for Prince Edward Island? Newfoundland was a different situation. But um, they're thinking ahead to this. I mean, for these guys who are running, you know, this is an era with no motor vehicles, right? No, I mean, they, well, they had a, no typewriter. Do they even have typewriters? I don't think so. No, no like a half-assed railway. Like we wouldn't consider that to be a railway today. <laughs> I mean, they right. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. But no airplanes. And so, did these people seen British Columbia? No. Had they seen most of the Northwest Territories? No. They Manitoba? No. Uh, but they had an idea of what was out there. They had an idea of what was possible together. Uh, they had an idea of what arrangements would we need to provide for today in order to make that possible. And I think they had, uh, as I tell from the debates, they had an idea of the greatness of opportunity that that would permit. And that that was worth all of the heartache of, you know, Nova Scotia wasn't happy about this aspect of Confederation, New Brunswick wasn't happy about this, and, you know, Quebec needs this, and okay, yes, we need all of that. Yes, we're going to handle it. We're going to man- We're going to take care of all of that and all of the headache and problems of that. And we're going to travel around in order to put this together. Why? Because the final objective here is, uh, is a level of opportunity for our people and for people we haven't encountered from countries we can't even think about because they're not countries yet. They're just yeah, 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 yeah. that are going to come here. And, you know, they knew there were, they knew there were first nations that needed to be uh, dealt with fairly. Obviously they were aware of that. Did that uh, go the way that we would like it to have gone today? Not all of it did. Some of it did, but not all of it. Okay. Right. So we would go back and fix that. Right. Okay. Got it. Um, but, uh, but they understood the level of opportunity that was involved and the opportunity for people they would never meet and never maybe even be able to imagine their circumstances in the future. Uh, that's an astounding inheritance. And before we go rip down the statue of Sir John Macdonald or, you know, um, uh, uh, diss the, the, uh, Hector Louis Langevin is building in in Ottawa because, oh, well, you know, he's involved in this thing, that thing, or some other thing. Yeah, okay. Uh, But the reason why we have all of these monuments to people is because put yourself in their shoes and think about what they were up to. An extraordinary accomplishment for which we are unendingly lucky, the least of us. Uh, Not to mention I've been extraordinarily lucky in the country, so I'm not talking about that. The least of us are extraordinarily lucky to live in that. And and for the folks like me who have done very well now, I just can't calculate the the gratitude. Yeah, oh, I love that. Uh, Just because we only have about four minutes left here, I just wanted, uh, because I know the listeners would love it, 
just a fun story that you can tell about your time serving with uh, Stephen Harper. And I'll tell you one of mine. It's self-deprecating, so you'll laugh. But um, I was a brand new. It was right after, actually, you left and Nigel Wright came in. And I was a brand new, you know, 23-year-old. My hero, I was working for my hero, who I've been following since I was 14 years old. And I wrote this memo for a for an oil and gas roundtable that we were doing. And I didn't know what Ultramar was because I was an Alberta boy. And I, in, in my attempt to, you know, be forward thinking, I, I did a little bit of research, but it was, it was like the kind of research you do for an undergrad paper. And I thought it was a union group, uh, which is, and so I remember uh, uh, the prime minister was reading my memo and he looked up from reading the memo and he said, who wrote this and who thinks that Ultramar is a union group? <laughs> and then he looked at me and I just like had gone pale. Oh, and, he's like, and he's like, it was you, wasn't it? And that's all he said. But I'll never you. forget all that. All, that was the first yes. time I ever experienced a cold sweat, like legitimately. Like, like, <laughs> it was just whoosh, I'm sweating. <laughs> right. Pretty alert, so that's but good. I don't know. And that's no, one of the things good. I appreciated so much about him is he read every memo that the 23 year old me wrote and he would circle anything he found you know not to be perfect go fix this go yes fix exactly this. exactly can decent know a few things <laughs> would commit gas stations yes. um, so i'll tell you very quickly a story i mean it's a uh, it's about the, the human side of of uh, of politics mr harvard's first trip to the white house uh to the oval office was to see george bush in july of 2006 and it happened after we'd set the date, after we'd agreed on the date with the White House. It turned out that this date was going to be Mr. Bush's, President Bush's 60th birthday. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so the usual protocol gift that would be exchanged was also going to be a birthday gift. So this had to be done to the nth degree. And uh, so he, he turns to me and he says, he says, I want you to put together a little task force on the 60th birthday present for president. <laughs> you know, like, oh, this is what I did this job for, right? Right, yeah, this is what. <laughs> so, we had a little discussion group, and uh, I'll do, you know, we're ready to tell you, I'll cut the story a little bit short, but we should get him, we should get him a, um, a mountain bike because he really likes to mountain bike. And there's this company in Vancouver that, that does mountain bikes. Um, uh, Dave Penner, who was my appointments director, um, uh, came up with this idea. Phoned over. No, he says, uh, sorry, uh, Paul Martin gave him one of those mountains. <laughs> There's a company outside of Ottawa that creates uh, maple wood baseball bats and, you know, you own the baseball team. Oh, okay, let's come back. Mr. Mr. Kretzer gave him one of those baseball bats. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and uh, so I come back and Penner's looking at the at the calendar and he says, do you know what date that is? And they said, yeah, it's, I think it's the, that we're, we're there the 5th of, 5th of July. He says, yeah, it's a sneak a peek at the Calgary Stampede. It's the night before the Calgary Stampede Parade. And I said, yeah, because we got to hightail it out of there so the Prime Minister can be in the parade yeah, the next right, day. right, right. And he says, hey, you should get one of those Stampede belt buckles. You know, they got a limited edition belt buckle every year. And uh, that, well, that, that's, that's, that's the perfect. <laughs> so we made some arrangements, which I won't go into here because we'll implicate too many people. Uh, in the process of getting the belt buckle, but that was not easy. So we get to the <clears throat> get to the reception and um, the, the lunch. The press conference is before the lunch, and uh, and uh, Bob Fife uh, from CTV at the time stands up and says, "I hear, I hear the, I hear the, I hear the, the birthday present's going to be good one. What do you think?" And like, who told him what the birthday present? Was? <laughs> the birthday present is not exchanged until right, lunch. right. We get to lunch and Bush comes in. He says, "Where's this birthday present?" <laughs> and they got the the box with the belt buckle sitting in the middle of his his uh, salad plate for the lunch. And uh, Harvard comes. He says, "Well, he says we got you this. Uh, you know, today is the opening of the Calgary Stampede, or tomorrow will be the opening of the Calgary Stampede." And uh, so we got the limited edition 2006 uh, sterling silver uh, Stampede belt buckle. And uh, Bush opens it up and he he looks and he says, "This is a nice belt, nice." A nice belt buckle. Nice belt buckle. <laughs> yeah. so he takes off his own belt, snaps <laughs> off the belt buckle, and puts on the stampede belt buckle. And he says, uh, I heard the Calgary Stampede. Is it true that that's bigger than Cheyenne Days? <laughs> and Harvey says, Yes, it's the Calgary Stampede is the biggest rodeo on the planet. Yeah. yeah. And bigger, much bigger than Cheyenne Days. He says, Well, I've been to Cheyenne Days. If it's bigger than that, it must be a pretty good, pretty good party. And he looks at the belt and he says, 
Cheney's going to be so jealous. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> those are the That's moments. Those are the moments that I just loved. Like uh, that, I would oft. Uh, this is the untold part of politics. But like when you get to sit around these people and you get to see them as humans, those are the stories that staffers tell one another, right? Like those yes. are the moments that we talk about. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Bush did say he was. Uh, he was out here for. Never came to Stampede, but he was out for the uh, the G G eight summit. Uh, Mr. Barnes G eight summit was at Kananaskis, uh, and he did say he was regretted that as he looked out the window of the summit uh, hotel, there's a pretty darn nice golf course there. He said, "I would like to have run a round of golf." Of course, the golf course unfortunately has been destroyed by uh, by the flood. Yes, yes, yeah. He never got a chance to golf. <laughs> oh, <laughs> to no. Golf, uh, country, but we did advise that anytime you want to come, yeah, we will. Yeah, you get up here. You can come. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank thank you so much for coming on, uh, Zach. For and Really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll have you on again. And just thanks for sharing uh, sharing your wisdom and experience with our listeners to, so that they can kind of get a picture into the humanity of even some of Canada's you know most powerful people. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with the podcast because I think you've got, you've got the right format here. You can do whatever you want. And you're doing what we're supposed to do with podcasts, which is something different, right? Some people who, you know, folks in the podcast I've listened to, I would never have had a chance to hear from them at any other point. You've got a good, you've got a good uh, opening question and closing question for them. So, <laughs> Thank you. No, I really, really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The CAD Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.